The solar industry employs so many workers. It is renewables have been the fastest growing additions of energy in the U.S. now, I think for a couple of years. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangent, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to interview Nathan Giovanelli. He's the Director of Business Development at IGS Solar. He helped start both the commercial and residential division of IGS in 2014. Since then, the company has developed, owned, and operates more than 150 megawatts of commercial solar assets. They operate in 19 states and have a booming residential division with more than 10,000 customers. IGS Energy is an independent retail natural gas and electric supplier in Dublin, Ohio. It serves more than 4 million residential, commercial, industrial customers. In a few short years, IGS has become the fifth largest solar developer based on 2017 data from Green Tech Media. Nate's actually been on the podcast two other times, so this is his third time. Make sure to check out those episodes. It's episode 58, Residential Solar Financing Options and Other Interesting Topics, and episode 20, The Solar Entrepreneurs, How Nate Helped IGS Become One of the Biggest Solar Asset Owners in the U.S. He's a thought leader, entrepreneur, friend, and colleague. Nate, welcome again to the Solar Maverick Podcast. Thanks, Benoit. It's great being here. I have to say, even though we were talking for a while before you hit record, it's just a weirder feeling than I anticipated not being across the table from you and doing this in person and looking at you on a computer screen. It's, yeah. uh, it, it, even with all that, it still feels odd, but I think that's kind of the point of what you wanted to talk about today. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first episode that we did, we were actually in Boston in PV American, sitting right next to each other in my hotel room when we taped it. And then November, last November, after the Giants came at your hotel room. So yeah, it's definitely surreal. We're actually focusing, as Nate talked about, impacts of COVID-19 on residential solar. You know, Nate brings a great perspective on this and our listeners who we call Mavericks, I think are gonna really enjoy the conversation. So thank you for making the time. Yeah, anytime, love being here. Yeah, you know, I spoke obviously about IGS, but can you talk about IGS in more detail and your role at IGS? Yeah, sure, I think you hit most of the highlights there. So IGS is the largest independent retailer of gas and electric in the country. So we're family owned and operated in business for I guess about 32 years now, owned by Scott White and the White family. I think we're actually the third largest retailer, period, including publicly traded companies. So as you'd mentioned at the, in that intro there, we have about 4 million residential customer equivalents is how they measure it for both gas and electric. We're in most of the deregulated markets, and really that's our core business. I also think that our ownership is like-minded with me and believe that there's a a real trend toward renewables and the fact that solar really is the utility of the future. You know, distributed power, I think, is going to be critical as the country continues to move forward. So it's great to work for a company that is independent and has such great foresight, and uh, they've given a lot of opportunities. And I think you can tell just from the size and scale of what we've done in the solar space 
that it's really been a blessing to work here and we've done some really great things. Yeah, definitely. That's really amazing. And it's uh, just really smart uh, for you know, an energy retailer to diversify into other power sources, specifically solar. Because as you know, like the long-term trend is that solar is going to be gross substantially and exponentially. And it's amazing how much of the market share, both commercial, industrial, and residential in the U.S. that IGS has been able to develop and own. And that's really impressive. So congratulations. Yeah, it's been fun. As you know, solar is uh, an interesting market, a little bit of a wild ride, but I've learned a lot and I really wouldn't trade anything that I've done and been able to accomplish with such a great company. And I think as time goes on and we'll be talking about a lot of these things today, IGS is really poised well to really be dominant in the solar market. And in particular, really focused on residential solar as time's gone on. So I think we'll be focused on that mostly today, although I have developed a lot of projects for commercial and CNI space as well, everything from nonprofits to Fortune 500s. And I think we've talked about that a little bit on the other two episodes. So I'll leave it at that. And uh, I think we can just move on with some of the topics that you want to cover. Yeah, definitely. That's really helpful. Can you talk about specifically like what your role is at IGS? Who are you trying to build relationships with? What's the value proposition that you're offering? And can you talk about as well, like the third party ownership model and why it's beneficial for a residential customer? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So I guess I came over to IGS, as you'd say, it's been over six years now. And so it was in 2014, and there was a group of us, a great group, many of which are still there, that formed distributed generation business, which later turned into our commercial solar business, uh, which we still are, are running own in where we own, operate, develop, use our capital to build projects, all of those things, asset manage for miscellaneous funds, some of which we own, some of which we don't. And then on the residential side, I had initiated a, a residential solar business probably closer to 2016. And we started just with one partner in three markets. Now we're in eight states, soon to be nine here, but probably by the time this thing's released. We have roughly six partners. We'll, again, by the end of this year, we'll probably have 10 or maybe 11 as you can see by the numbers, we have about 10,000 customers in operation. Pre-COVID, our partners were selling roughly 1,500 a month, and we were installing more than half of that because there's a little bit of lag, right, as sales ramp up before they turn into actual installs and eventually PTO, which is permission to operate, or we'll call it your your project complete uh, for those that aren't familiar. So I'm really focused on continuing to expand our residential solar business. And we work with network of what the industry refers to as EPCs. You're looking at uh, people that are going out there. They're actually doing the sale, the procurement of the equipment, the engineering, and the construction of the systems for us. And then we're the back-end asset manager, long-term owner, financier. So in our model, which you referred to as TPO, it just means third-party ownership. It's really a no-cash-down option. So there's a few different ways that customers or residential homeowners can go solar, right? They can just buy the panels outright for cash. If you have $35,000 sitting around and you're not worried about a pretty long payback, again, it's going to depend on how much sun you get and state incentives and utility prices and all kinds of things. So it really varies based on where you're at in the country. But you could certainly 
just pay cash and have someone come install a solar array and then recoup your money over time by having a lessened electric bill. That would be one. So that would be a, a cash option. And then there's also what I still call it a cash, but it's a loan. So you can go out and get a loan and it's the same thing. The idea is that your loan payments are less than what your electricity payment would have been. So if your electric bill was $300 a month, I'm just using round numbers and again, it can vary. But if your electric bill was 300 a month and your loan payments 250, then presumably if you're offsetting 100% of your bill, then you're up $50 a month. So that's how you get your payback in that. But it's still a loan. It's an obligation you have. Generally, you're required to maintain the system. They're all structured a little bit differently depending on how you finance that loan. And then there's a solar lease which is considered TPO, and there's different structures for lease. Generally, it's a flat rate payment, and you pay that regardless of the output of the solar array. And again, the idea is that your lease payment would be less than, on an annualized basis at least, your lease payment's less than what you're offsetting in terms of power price. And then finally, what IGS does in a majority of our markets, all but one, is a power purchase agreement. And that's simply, we're becoming the long-term utility and retailer of that electric by putting solar on your roof. So we're going to own the panels and you're going to pay for the power that's produced. And generally speaking, you're paying that power at a discount to what you would otherwise buy it for from the utility in a third-party retailer, or we'll just say in general, what you would pay from the grid. Definitely. That's really helpful. That's a lot of great information. And I guess, what are the benefits for a residential customer doing a PPA versus the other owning the system, whether it's cell phone through cash? You mentioned the loan and the lease. What's the benefit of doing a PPA for a residential customer? The benefit is that if you're paying less for power, your, your payback's immediate, right? So there's really no ROI because you're not paying any cash for the system. So someone else is paying for it. Somebody else is monetizing the federal investment tax credit. And if, if you can't monetize that, then it definitely makes sense to, to go TPO if you don't make enough in taxable income to offset what that would be. So it's immediate savings. It's simple. You don't have to worry about state incentives. That's all taken care of by the third-party owner. The contract's transferable. So if you're not in your home for the, the whole term, you know, you can transfer your, your contract. You don't have to worry about O&M, asset management, maintenance. And in a PPA versus a lease, you're only paying for the power that's generated. So if for whatever reason there's an issue, which is extremely rare, but if the system's not producing, if there's a broken inverter that is preventing you from your system from performing at 100%, it's the owner's responsibility in this case, IGS, to go fix that. And if you're only getting 90% of the power that you should be because of one of these, again, rare issues, you're not paying for it. You're really only downside in that scenario is you're saving a little bit less because you're only getting 90% of the power from the system until it's fixed as opposed to 100%, but you're not losing out on all the savings like you would if you did an outright purchase or a lease. Sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. And how does IGS differentiate themselves from other residential financing? Meaning other, I know you talked about the differences between the different financing products, but IGS primarily as an investor, how do you differentiate from other residential solar financing providers? You know, I think there's a lot there. I don't want to sound 
too much like a commercial, but I'll, I'll just say that we try and one, stay, really stay in our lane right now. We don't compete with our partners. So we don't have other crews that are constructing projects or anything like that, like some of the big national players or the other big national players. I think the fact that we have a ton of experience in the energy markets and energy space through our commodity team, but also simplicity. You know, our contract is much shorter than any other contract in the market. Our signature is on page seven, so as opposed to 27. And it's just simpler to read, I think. So I believe there's a lot of advantages there. Obviously, from a partner standpoint, we like to think that our system was, I liken it to sort of like an insurance model. We try and take all the friction out by being as streamlined and automated as possible, keep our costs down so that we can pay our partners as much as we can to go not only generate the customer, but also build the system. So I think we have a really good system there. And like I said, not saying that other companies aren't looking out for the consumer, but I do think that IGS wants to be the long-term owner of these assets and not flip portfolios. So we have a long-term stake in this customer. We want to be their utility 25 years from now, so to speak, you know, it's kind of a figure of speech, but we want to sell them power from this array in long term. So I think that maybe we look at things a little bit differently because of that. Like I said, we don't have 200, 500,000 channel partners. I don't know we'll ever get to that point. I think it's a little unwieldy. We're just trying to be very efficient. And I think that's, again, that we're going to get into a little bit more later. I think that's going to be necessary in this industry as margins continue to get compressed and costs continue to have to get squeezed out to come down to make economic sense for the customer. Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. What is like the ideal residential installer that IGS would want to partner with? You mentioned how you don't want to work with everyone. You just want to work with a few good partners. Can you talk about the traits that they have and what you're looking for? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of times we've been fortunate. We started with some large super regional partners that have been really good and partners for us and still continue to be. And since then, I, I think a lot of times partners seek us out. They see generally what they see in us is they see our contract. It's a small competitive world and customers solicit quotes all the time, whether they're going cash or TPO, right? They want to know what our PPA rate is versus somebody else's. And our, our partners have the autonomy to pick that rate and it affects the amount that we can pay them for the job. And I think a lot of people operate that way. But ultimately speaking, I think people seek us out. They see our contract. They come up against it. They're like, this seems like a really great contract. I want to learn more about you guys as a company. And really, I think it comes down to cultural fit is extremely important. We want to make sure because, again, this is a 25, this is a long-term relationship with that customer. And we want to make sure that that customer has a good experience at day one, when they sign the contract, the day, whatever it would be 25 years from now, because we are going to be here as an energy provider, regardless of how they're buying their energy. So that's that cultural fit's really important for us. I'd like to think that we don't have just price-driven relationships because there's a lot of other intangibles that we offer. Ultimately, I'm looking for partners that are number one in the markets in which we operate. It's a lot easier for us to add partners than in these markets. At the same time, I don't want 
too many partners in the same market that are overlapping and stepping on each other. We want somewhat of an exclusive feel to our product where it's just not accessible by everyone. So I think that's kind of another uniqueness of us. So they're in our market. They have a good cultural fit. They understand the other value that we provide, whether it's faster, smoother platform, which hopefully gets them, enables them to build projects, turn on projects faster. So there's, I think there's an advantage there. There's some advantages in how we do customer credit and we accept credit cards, which a lot of other finance parties don't. And a lot of people this day and age want to pay with a credit card. They want the points, you know, so they can take their kids to Disney or or whatever it may be. I I know I'm like that as well. So I think there's some advantages there and, and we don't charge penalties if you don't use ACH. And again, I think it's all about that overall customer experience. And we're just looking for people that can want to grow with us specifically, especially as markets get compressed and constrained through changing, whether it's federal investment tax credit or other incentives that declining block programs or changing SREC programs, all these things have an impact on everyone's margin and, and customer savings. And we want partners that want to come along with us and realize that benefit to instead of growing just in terms of sheer volume of partners, what if you had a few really good partners and you could grow their business alongside yours? I think there's a lot of value there. Yeah, there definitely is a lot of value and I appreciate you explaining. I think that's huge, like the contract. And as you said, in the prior project, that's something that your mom could read and understand, right? Because (laughs) (laughs) that was our goal. Yeah, we spent a lot of time on that. Not even read and understand. It's just something that you want them to want to read it. You know, it's got to be a contract, but somewhat non-intimidating, I think is a good way to say it. It is a 25-year, although you have no cash out as a customer, it is a 25-year agreement. It's an intimate sale because it's on your home, right, which is arguably your biggest asset. So it's very intimate relationship that you have with that customer. And certainly you want to start out by ensuring that they really understand the agreement. And the easiest way to do that is to make it very customer friendly. And it's probably all not at the end of the day, might not be all that dissimilar from any other contract, but at least like to think that it's less intimidating. So people want to read it and understand it. And and ultimately that, again, starts for a better customer experience and relationship. Definitely, that makes sense. To change gears a little bit, can you talk about how COVID-19 has impacted residential soldier? Yeah, I know we were going to get right into that. And I think this is one of the things that we haven't talked about yet. And I, you know, I think I can talk about this from a high level, but there's so many impacts and nitty gritty and just kind of shockwaves that some of which are yet to be seen. You know, I think first and foremost, there's just a drastic reduction in sales in the residential space. I think anyone that tells you different is probably telling you a bill of goods because at the end of the day, a lot of the solar industry, again, I mentioned it's an intimate sale and a lot of those sales are generated from canvassers. So people that are just walking your neighborhood, knocking doors, asking if you're interested in solar, you know, that could be upwards of 50% or more of a lot of how a lot of these EPCs, how they generate leads and ultimately generate business. So without the ability to canvas, I think you lose a lot of sales. And then to layer onto that, a lot of the sales are done. I mean, vast majority of the close is done in home. You got to sign a contract. And prior to COVID, I don't know that there's a whole lot of companies out there that are closing deals 
over Zoom, right? I mean, it's really hard to sell a 25-year commitment virtually. And I think that's always been something that sort of plagued the market because no one had really cracked that code. There are a few companies out there that are trying, and I've talked to a couple of them, and I commend them. And I think now they're definitely in the right, uh, and they'll be proven that their model is going to be necessary Post-COVID, I think, is more and more customers are probably going to rely on more, just like we're doing this podcast, over the internet, regardless of what kind of uh, presentation software you're using to have that. But ultimately, I think it's harder for the sales rep to make that connection. It's less personal. So ultimately, your pull-through rate or the amount of sales you're going to convert based on appointments is going to be lower because you're not literally at their kitchen table. And then I think the other aspect is for those who had call centers that were located predominantly in the Northeast, which a lot of large solar companies are for residential. And and by that, um, I guess the kind of the tri-state of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, the call centers aren't able to operate because you can't have more than five or 10 people in a room together. And that has a tremendous downstream effect as well. If you can't, if you're not knocking doors, you can't generate leads on the phone. You're literally pushing everything to Facebook and um, social media to rely on leads. And I think some companies are more successful than others in that transition. And those are going to be even better poised to come out of this stronger because it's just another tool in their toolkit of how they can acquire customers. So I think that's that I see the most immediate and drastic effect of COVID. The other thing is we have a, quite a backlog of projects because some projects are sitting there and we can't get them turned on because if the meter's inside the house, the utility in, in some of these states I mentioned won't turn your system on. So that has an impact, you know, on a lot of different ways. We have customers with this asset on their roof. They want to save money and it's like, sorry, we can't turn you on. And, you know, it's no one's fault. I think that they understand that. But certainly that's going to have an impact. I think that there's going to be an impact on that is still yet to be seen that's going to affect the capital markets. IGS was fortunate. We closed our fund in March, actually, at the very end of March. So we were still able to close our fund, even though that was kind of the really the ramp up of the pandemic. And luckily, we have really strong relationships with our finance partners and tax equity. And, and a lot of this industry is built on those sorts of relationships. But ultimately, you know, if that were two months from now, who knows? It might have been very difficult to still close on that fund. So I think we're incredibly fortunate to have good partnerships and tons of good people at IGS that are working on on those very complex capital structured deals. That's been good, but I do think there'll be a ripple effect there. There's all these different components. I would like to say coming out of this on the flip side, it's my opinion that specifically with TPO, I think people are going to be looking to save money any way they can. And there's already kind of this cultural shift, at least I believe, in America toward renewables. And now they're going to have the opportunity, you know, as they're looking to save money, even in markets that are maybe a little bit tighter where the PPA rate or the cost of power from solar, there's not that much of a spread between that and what the utility rate is or the avoidable rate. I think you'll have more customers that are looking to save money any way they can, and that's a great way to do it. So I think you'll see more TPO. I don't know how it'll affect loans. I would have to think with unemployment numbers that we're seeing that people are going to be apprehensive about taking out a loan for a solar array. Again, I think that's more of an opinion than a fact. I don't know. But I do think it'll be interesting to see 
how this ripples through not just solar, but the economy in general. Yeah, definitely. There are so many great points from what you said. I was thinking about when you were saying this, many different things. But when do you think the residential customer will be comfortable with buying solar online? Meaning like not going through like a Zoom and a salesman trying to sell virtually or through a, but just going online and buying solar. Yeah, see, this is one of those questions that we should ask every time on the podcast, because (laughs) you'll see that my opinion has changed so much. Probably if you would ask me this on the first podcast, I know I would read articles about just things that you read online, that solar's outdated and people liking it, the door-to-door vacuum sales. And I'll tell you what, it's a whole heck of a lot different selling a vacuum cleaner than a 25-year asset that's going to literally permanently attach, or, you know, permanently, it's going to attach to a customer's home, which again is their biggest asset. I do. I just think it's a really intimate sale, you know, but then again, now you can buy cars online with giant coins and like a vending machine. I would have never guessed I would see that. I do think my opinion has been that, uh, especially because of COVID, that the market's going to be forced to pivot this way. And I think that when you look at really the three components of what makes up the cost of residential solar, and this is certainly oversimplifying it, but you have your labor component, you have your equipment component, which would be panels, inverters, racking, and balance the system, and then you have your customer acquisition costs, right? And the customer acquisition cost, that piece, I think, has been a thorn in the side of the residential solar industry because it's very expensive to acquire a customer. And you can look at any of the the public companies that are more, say, fully integrated that do their own construction and sales generation. And, and they report on these numbers and they're consistently, it could be a third of the value or in some cases even more of what it costs to put a solar system up. So if you think about, okay, well, there's tariffs now on solar panels, right? So actually for a while in my short, I guess, or maybe it's long tenure in solar because solar's still <laughs> relatively young, but you know, I've seen as you have Benoit, solar panels really come down in price as efficiencies have gone up, but I'm not sure that that trend continues to hold, hold water and I'm not sure how much more efficiency you can squeeze out of a panel. So with the tariffs and some of the things that are enacted, we saw panel prices go up, especially at the end of last year where companies were buying a lot of panels that they could then redeploy in a different tax year. And I don't want to get too much into that, but that made really the demand for panels go up a lot toward the end of last year. They did come, I think, the demand lower in the beginning of this year, which was to be expected. But I don't know if we really saw the drop yet. Now, I think with coupled with COVID and less systems being deployed, less sales, which will eventually lead to less construction, you might see some panel pricing come down. But ultimately, you know, I don't know exactly how much room is left there. So I think most of the value stack that you can take cost out of is that customer acquisition cost. And a great way to do that would be to crack the code on how do you sell it online? I know there's Tesla's always sort of been an innovator in this space and they've thrown out some different types of products and leases for residential solar. It's a little bit more one size fits all that where they're trying to do like a, a more of a, you just truly lease the panel, like an equipment lease. I'm not sure how that'll work out. I think it's going to be very difficult to make work in the capital markets because you have no long-term commitment and you're, it's a tremendous cost, as we discussed. Even if you take out a third of it and say a third is customer acquisition, it's still a tremendous cost in equipment and labor to get a system on someone's house just for them to 
choose to remove it five years from now or even less will be very difficult. And obviously you would have other downstream ramifications in that as well, such as the tax credit, you'd have some clawback and other things. So I would like to think that the COVID, the good that's going to come out of this is how companies are going to get better at acquiring customers. And I think a big chunk of that will be figuring out how to really simplify, streamline the process, educate customers and get them comfortable buying or entering into a long-term agreement online. Yeah, definitely. You know what the interesting thing too is if you're selling TPO, you would think it would be a lot easier to sell online because then the customer's like, what's the discount that I'm, what's the PPA rate, right? I don't have to worry about owning the system, what the system size is, how much it's going to produce, the O&M and all these other things. So it's interesting. Well, I guess it's to, to be determined. Yeah, it's like, even if somebody has, they really want to be green, right? And there's all these other aspects and environmental benefits that come along with it that also can drive kind of the customer response. They still have to deal with having a, a separate bill, right? Because you're still going to get a bill from the utility based on how solar works. You might not offset all the power in a given month, or there could be other charges from the utility that aren't offset. So it's another bill you have to deal with. Plus, they want to know, like, how is it going to look on their house, right? They just don't want to throw panels up there. So there's a lot of other things that come along with it that do, I think, make it intimate. But like I said, if you would ask me years ago about people buying cars online or mattresses, I gave that example the other day. Like, it seems insane, but here we are, right? This is the next generation. So I think over time, yeah, people will get more and more comfortable with entering a long-term relationship or energy hedge to buy cleaner, cheaper power with the caveat of they're generating it on the roof. Yeah, definitely. That, that makes sense. This episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Podcast Laundry, the podcast concierge service that I use to make sure that my listeners hear the best quality show. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up time to do more of what you love to do, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347 8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Thank you. Going to a concept that you talked about, like cost of capital, has do you think with COVID-19, like the cost of capital has changed for solar projects? I know it's pretty early in the process of the COVID-19. We're here May 21st. Just like not too different from commercial solar, you really have your three pillars, right? You have your inner roughly divided a third, a third, a third. Let's just talk about it that way in terms of simplicity. So you have your cash equity, you know, you have your tax equity, and then you have your debt on top of that to juice your return. So those are, are basically the three pillars. And it, it will be very interesting to see how things shake out. I know, again, if, if I were trying to close on a fund right now, I would have, I think I would have the most concern in over tax equity. I think there's just a lot of uncertainty, uh, especially through syndication and, and companies are making less money. So there's less tax available and, and what have their commitments been? So I think there's a concern there from the cash equity standpoint. There could be concerns over if solar is now a riskier investment, depending on what default rates are. And I think generally speaking through the last decade or however long PPAs have been around, it's been 
a bull economy, right? So you haven't really seen one of those huge economic downturns since the popularization of the solar PPA to really get a sense of does it affect default rates. And I think that remains to be seen. I'd like to think that people see the value of obviously paying your utility bill and in, in energy in general, but they, I'd like to say that they see the value of getting cleaner, cheaper power, and therefore they're going to continue to fulfill their contractual obligation to pay their loan or TPO provider. But then again, you know, if you're in a position like a lot of Americans where you're just trying to make ends meet because of this global pandemic, you might not have the ability to pay, even though you have the best intentions. And certainly, I think companies in all sectors of the economy, whether it's your mortgage or utility or what have you, are are trying to work with these customers, understanding it's a, a very difficult time. And certainly, IGS is no exception there. But Again, you know, if you see default rate spike, that could certainly raise the cost of capital. Investors are going to expect higher returns in the next fund because those defaults are are hurting their previous investments. And frankly, it would be very hard to argue why they shouldn't get a higher return if that's the case. You know, if you're building a portfolio around a certain rate expectation of certain this percentage of customers is going to pay and they're going to pay on time and you're basing all your investments around that and that's not the case even if it is this again external factor that's creating it then I, I certainly think that's going to raise the cost of capital and that's going to flow through to debt and everything else and you know banks have kind of have their own challenges right now in this economic climate so maybe coming back you know solar is not as sexy of an investment but I would think that just from a generalized standpoint the solar industry employs so many workers. It is renewables have been the fastest growing additions of energy in the U.S. now, I think for a couple of years. So there's a demand for it. Again, it's the fastest growing source of new electricity generation in the U.S. It employs just solar employs more jobs than coal and and fossil fuel extraction, almost two to one. That's all. You can get all that information right from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So I'm pretty confident in that data. And and if you look at the broader renewables, I mean, you see even more employment. And I think the BLS, I, I know I posted on this on LinkedIn at one point, has expected, I think it's solar installer and wind turbine technician to be the two fastest growing job segments in the U.S. over the next five years. So I think there's a vested interest to keep renewable energy alive, not just from an economic standpoint, but also from a moral standpoint of of just doing the right thing. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that, too, if you look at renewables, it's actually a great investment, especially when you talk about like a power purchase agreement where you're basically getting a fixed return over a 20-year period. I mean, there's not many, obviously there's the stock market, there's bonds, but, you know, the yields on bonds are extremely low, you know, and obviously with the stock market, you have a lot of volatility that we've been seeing, obviously. I don't know. I still think that renewable, specifically solar, and when you talk about a PPA, is still a great investment opportunity. It's just that you're right. I agree. I mean, I think the flip side of that, and we kind of touched on it, so I'll just kind of maybe merge the two, is, you know, we talked about cost of capital. Even if it remains a good investment, all these things, less tax availability because there's less corporate profits or or what have you, or less people that have tax set aside specifically for renewables or more debt or bad debt or banks holding on to cash or all these different things that drive up the cost of capital defaults. 
But I also think that right now we're in a, a weird time where the, the cost of solar has been plummeting. And I don't have any research or anything to really prove this out. But at least anecdotally, it feels to me that the cost to build projects is, at least for residential solar, is pretty flat. It's not kind of increasing right now because of, you know, labor costs generally go up with time, with inflation, right? Material costs go up with the tariff. I'd like to think we get to a point where those prices come back down, but that hasn't been the case, at least in the very short term that passed that if you look backwards. And I also think that now as a result, like we just talked about, customer acquisition is going to go up. I do think that more customers will be looking to go solar to save money to a no-cost solar option where they don't have money out of pocket. And maybe there'll be more loans too, because you can certainly save money that way as long as you can still monetize the ITC or federal investment tax credit. But ultimately speaking, I do think that you're going to see a a short term, it's going to be harder to acquire customers as everyone kind of resets in this new environment as you can't go door to door. You're selling online and learning that competency maybe. And again, you're not pulling through as many customers or getting as high percentage of sales as you once were. So I think there's all these different kind of levers that we're looking at and no one really knows what the outcome will be. But I do think that costs at this point seem to have plateaued a little bit. And there's been margin compression in other areas. Just the ITC stepping down itself compresses margin by a good amount. You could say, well, just going from 30 to 26, but it's a little bit more complex than that. So I think that's a consideration. I think you look at across whether you're in New York or Massachusetts, you have these declining blocks Right. So the state incentives are decreasing in New Jersey. The state incentive for residential solar is decreasing in their transition program. And then other states with SRECs, there's generally been a a decrease in the value of those RECs for a variety of reasons. And, And that's just kind of the current landscape. So when you add all these things together, I think there has been some market compression in terms of margin compression in terms of the residential solar space. And in some ways, I think we talked about this in the last podcast, like good, right? I think that could be a good thing. You know, the point of the ITC is to step down over time, right? So the market can get its foothold and then become self-sufficient. And I think it's going to force companies to consolidate, to get better, to learn how to sell online, to lower acquisition costs. I mean, that's going to be the end result. Like, I don't think the market's going to go away. I know that was one of your questions. I believe, as I've stated many times, that there's a cultural shift in America towards renewables. I believe that the data has proven that really solar is is bipartisan. Sure, there are people that would disagree with me, and I would love to have a debate with them about that. But I do think there's empirical evidence that show that that's generally true, especially at the consumer level, right? On the political stage, yeah, there's there's different motivations for different kinds of, of energy and, and how it affects the overall economy and jobs and so on. So I just mean on the individual consumer level, that's really what I'm talking about is the, the consumer and that cultural shift toward cleaner energy. So I think the solar market is not only going to prevail, it's, it's going to thrive uh, in the future, regardless of the ITC. I mean, Benoit, you know better than anyone, all the states that are setting these really hyper-aggressive renewable energy targets. And they're going to have to continue to work with the industry to find creative ways. And and hopefully, again, all these costs come down and eventually you reach grid parity or the cost of renewables is the same as the grid. And 
depending on who you talk to and what their feeling is and what kind of sector of renewables they're in. Some people will say we're there now. I, you know, I don't know. There's too much ambiguity in that to really make a stance either way, I think, if you're being honest. But ultimately, yeah, you know, I think if we redesigned the grid, it would look a lot different than when they thought of the grid, you know, 100 years ago. You know, certainly we would change things. We'd have different energy mix. And as we've talked about many times, I think batteries will play a big part in that as well to help drive the intermittency out of some of these renewable resources like solar and wind. But ultimately, there's a long way to go. I actually, just because I feel like I've been doing way too much talking, one of the questions I wanted to ask you and somebody had asked me, and they're like, hey, I get a lot of positive feedback about the podcast. I love being on it. And one of the questions I got from someone outside the industry was, you know, you never talk about what is the vision for renewables? Like, what do you see as the long-term vision? Like, what's the end goal? What do you think? I think that's a challenging question. Like, what's the vision, right? Because there's no, I mean, what would be great is to have a national federal policy on what the vision is for energy in general. But I feel like it's more happening state by state. And it's interesting, you mentioned like, a lot of states are having 100% renewable energy goals, but I think it's going to be a mix of different types of fuel sources. Batteries are going to play a huge part of it, but I think, you know, there'll still be natural gas, potentially nuclear as well, that will still be involved. I know some people define natural gas as a cleaner fuel. So that's an interesting question because I feel like it really kind of depends and it's hard to kind of define Obviously, you want to use as many renewable resources as possible because finite resources will, at the end of the day, be limited and basically end at a certain point. So, and then get more risky. Like, so, you know, natural gas, obviously, we have a lot of natural gas and they're getting better at drilling for shale and things like that. But what is the cost that's happening with the environment, even though the U.S. has a plentiful supply? of shale. This actually goes to an interesting point because I wanted to get your perspective of it too. But what do you think is the best economic mechanism to promote clean energy? I know we've spoke about this before. We talked about the carbon tax and things like that. So it'd be great to get your perspective. Yeah, you asked me this the other day and I thought it was a really simple and interesting question. And it, I was surprised that I was having such a hard time coming up with it because I don't know that there's a, a right answer to this question. I mean, thinking about this actually last night, thinking about the different economic mechanisms that are currently in place, as you said, it's largely state specific. And, you know, ideally you wouldn't need anything, right? You would just need sunshine and people that want to breathe cleaner air. But then I think about like California, it's kind of interesting and I'm not sure how ultimately this will play out, but they're you know, mandating that new homes have solar. I could say, well, that's probably the best economic mechanism to promote clean energy, right? Because uh, you're, you're mandating homes have it. But stepping back from that, yeah, I think you kind of echoed what we had discussed yesterday and what I said, you know, just economics, simple economics tells me that if you're taking a finite resource and using it, and who knows how much crude is left or natural gas. I hear all kinds of crazy numbers and I understand that it's probably really hard to calculate because we're getting better and better at extracting it like you've mentioned and we have found some of these shale reserves. But at the end of the day, it's still a finite resource. So why not use something that's infinite? And by definition, it's supply and demand. The harder it is to extract and the less of it there is, the more it's going to cost. So I think the time is now to start to transfer regardless of your thoughts on the environment or 
global warming or anything like that. I think the time is now to start to transition and in- increase how we view renewables and find ways to make them more efficient and ways for people to better consume renewables or go solar. And I do think that you can't ignore two things on both sides. One, you can't ignore the, the cost, the environmental cost of fossil fuel. I know people, again, can will argue that, and that probably is a little bit more maybe of a partisan issue. But at the end of the day, I mean, science is science. And I'm pretty convinced that it's immoral to ignore the cost of that carbon. But at the same time, I don't think we should ignore the cost that the grid provides for solar customers, right? Because solar is intermittent and you still have to be connected to the grid. And there's costs associated with that. Not that there's not also benefits from solar. I believe there are. But hopefully batteries, as we've talked about now a couple of times, will, will help remove that gap. I still haven't answered your question, which is sort of on purpose, because I, I don't know there is a right answer to this question. I think that we're going to continue to evolve to the point where the only subsidy that's needed is sunshine. So I, I do think we'll eventually get there with better, more efficient panels. And if we tap it, the high end of what the efficiency of these panels are, and you just can't squeeze more out of it or squeeze more cells into it, I'm confident that in the future, because this is a a major priority for a lot of people, we'll get more creative in what that looks like. And again, not to refer back to Tesla, we all know they've had kind of a tumultuous relationship with solar, definitely come a long way and through Solar City and others. But they're always innovating. I'll give them that. They have all these different ideas, whether it's a solar shingle or something. I don't think we're quite there yet, but hopefully in the future we will be, and that'll make sense at least for new home construction. So that's where we're going on. It's only states have to decide, right, how fast. I agree with you 100%, by the way, to back up, federal policy would be great. (laughs) I don't see that happening. So if states want to hit these 100% renewable goals, then they're going to have to do something to help continue to spur on solar development and to drive investment into those markets. And every state's approached a little bit differently. I hesitate to say one is better than the other. I think the markets generally prefer and there's better value in having a a fixed incentive if there's going to be one as opposed to a floating incentive that creates uncertainty. I think you're giving up a little bit of value there for the rate payers and and the state. So I like that a lot of feels like states are moving toward more of a fixed type incentive, whether it's a declining block, which is, I think, makes sense. But again, that's further margin compression with the declining ITC. So you got to consider that as well. But ultimately, there is no incentive needed long term. In the short term, I would say that the best policy is to mandate it, like California. Not that I'm advocating for that, but that would be probably the cleanest answer to the very complex question that you posed. Yeah, definitely. That's really helpful. Some states have passed legislation to help the rebound of the economy during COVID-19. For example, Massachusetts doubled their SMART program. New York actually came up with an office to basically help site utility scale projects quicker. Virginia actually passed 100% renewables. This all happened in the past few weeks, and part of it was a response to COVID-19. Do you think other states are going to be coming up with uh, state programs to to spur on more development of clean energy to stimulate the economy? Well, I think they're going to have to, if they want, again, if they want to hit their goals, especially the states that have these really aggressive renewable goals, which I commend them for, it doesn't appear that the federal government is going to step in at this today, step in and do something, which I guess I should pause and say, 
I was wrong last time I was on your podcast. I have no problem admitting it. I was very bullish on the ITC extension at 30% as opposed to stepping it down. And I remained bullish until the very end. And obviously that didn't happen. So time has proven me wrong, which is not that uncommon. I was definitely wrong on that one. I think there's some other factors there. You got pulled at the last minute. But, you know, I don't see that anything, any major movement. I haven't heard about anything on the policy front from the federal policy level or stimulus level. So I think states will have to do it. But I, I think there's, again, and we touched on both these, but there's two aspects to it. There's meeting these renewable energy goals, but then there's also jobs, right? Getting people back to work, like renewable energy is really good, high paying jobs. And as some of the stats I threw out before, you have some of the fastest growing job sectors in the U.S., that are, again, high paying, good benefits, and employ more people than fossil fuel extraction. So it's going to be imperative for the whole economy to get people back to work, regardless of what market sector they're in. But given the fact that renewables and solar and wind specifically are projected to be the fastest growing markets for the addition of labor, then I think it would behoove everyone to make sure that they're bringing those people back to work. I saw New Jersey just yesterday, I think, allowed in-home sales to commence again. So hopefully that'll bring a lot of the residential people sales representatives back to work or at least start to, you know, still haven't gotten to canvassing yet. And I'm not sure what that looks like in the future when it comes back with all the restrictions that are around and just general consumer sentiment of somebody knocking on their door in light of the pandemic. So uh, time will tell. But I do think, like all things, that there's going to be good that comes from this. There's going to be, hopefully, companies that learn how to better sell online, customers that are more receptive to buying online that's going to drive down that customer acquisition cost. People are going to get find more innovative ways to probably come to market to continue to drive down costs so that they can come out of this thing stronger, right? And they're going to have all these different tools in their toolkit that's going to be necessary, that was necessary during the pandemic and just is additive to their business in the future. So I do think ultimately that just like a lot of other industries, people are incredibly innovative and there's going to be good that'll come from this. And whether the states chip in or not, we'll see. I don't know. I'd like to say that they all see the value of jobs and clean energy, but no. Yeah, definitely. That's a great answer. I really enjoy like the Monday motivation that you put on LinkedIn. Can you talk more about that and what got you to do that? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I mean, the most recent quote <laughs> last Monday, which was a quote that which I is, provided in. Exactly. So. <laughs> I think this is a staged question. Yeah, we talked about this, I think, at the end of the last podcast. Is, um, this actually started because IDS was doing video calls before it was cool, right? We, <laughs> we were doing it. We started doing um, pre-COVID, which served us well going into COVID. But And I had a whiteboard over my shoulder. I had a chalkboard that was leaning against the door that I'd used for my kids' first day of school. And they were all getting a kick out of reading it. And then I realized that was a great opportunity to put a whiteboard over my shoulder. Kind of like I think they do it on some of those sports shows, too, where they were all remote, you know, and they have funny sayings or whatever. But I, I just started putting up different quotes that kind of resonated with me, whether it was from my week or personal or business and it just kind of became a thing and I get a lot of people talking about it on LinkedIn as you mentioned we were talking I was like I need a quote for this week 
And I was torn between a few quotes and you gave me one that I actually ended up using, which is a Tony Robbins quote that leaders spend 5% of their time on the problem and 95% of the time on the solution. So just get over it and crush it. And I liked it because I think that a lot of times we need to approach things with a solution oriented mindset. And it, it just makes conversations a lot easier, focuses on really what you can control and, and not the past. I know one thing one quote I, I throw around a lot with my kids and coworkers is, I think it's a Ray Lewis quote, but only fools trip on what's behind them. Like, you, you can't worry about that. Let's just figure out how we're going to move forward together. So that's how it started. And yeah, you can see it now because we're in a video call over my shoulder. And anyone who wants to follow me on LinkedIn will see that I post it every Monday. I post my quote of the week. I got to start keeping track of them so I don't make sure I don't duplicate them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's actually really helpful. I think actions at the end of the day are really what makes a difference. It's sometimes we're paralyzed by fear or we procrastinate and really to focus on the solution and being in the present, right? Not focusing on the past, not even focusing on the future, what you could handle today. So that's huge. Right. And it's interesting because I was actually, someone called me on Monday. I thought you would find this interesting. And they said they enjoyed the podcast that you were on, the residential we were talking about residential. That was the last podcast that we did with you. And she really enjoyed like the book recommendation that we both had, which was The Atomic Habit by James Clare. She said like she was, and then the whole concept too about getting 1% better, which you talked about that. And then the power of compounding. She really found it really helpful for her. And she's a listener to the podcast. Wanted to see if you had any book recommendations or things that you're, I know you listen to a lot of books on Audible and wanted to I see. I do. Yeah. And podcasts. Although podcasts. I think like a lot of people, this has kind of disrupted my routine. Um, not in the car. And I also, um, I actually had to get back surgery, which prevented me from running. And I, I would run a lot. And when I was running previous, I would always, that's when I would listen to all my podcasts on my runs for the week. So a little bit out of disoriented here in light of not being in the car and, and not getting to run, although I'm just starting to get back to it. But I think the last book I read was Talking to Strangers, which is Malcolm Gladwell's latest book. And he's been one of my favorite authors. I just I really love those sorts of books that really dive into different trends and just like facts about how people view the world versus reality, I think is maybe a way to summarize it. I just find it incredibly interesting. Some of the things that he uncovers, although some of them are controversial, Kind of like there's a few other books like that, like Freakonomics, I think is another good one. Like just the, these weird things about the economy, what drives consumer reaction to various things. I find those really interesting. I highly recommend those. The one that's in my queue right now, I think that you said your, is also in yours that was recommended by a colleague of mine is Never Split the Difference. And I haven't read it yet, but uh, that'll probably be the next one that, that I read. Yeah, I've heard a lot of great things about Never Split the Difference. I'm excited to listen to it since I rarely read anymore. But I have like all these books that I'm trying to force myself to read that I don't have audible for. So. <laughs> a lot of time on your hands, right? You nowhere to go, locked up. It's just uh, getting out of that routine, I think, is finding the new normal, you know, being home all the time, kids and full-time uh, teacher and parent and uh, employee has caught a lot of people off guard. But, you know, I encourage everyone to embrace it as much as they can. And as you said, live in the present, right? I mean, 
get to spend all this time with your kids and it can certainly be frustrating, but <laughs> especially when you're trying to do all these other things, but at the end of the day, you know, time is, is one thing you can't get more of, right? So you really got to use it wisely. Great. Yeah, that was a great way to end the podcast. Uh, if people wanted to learn more about IGS, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, IGS.com or reach out to me on LinkedIn and they'll all be in the show notes. You know, it's been really fantastic. Been a way. I love being on it. I, I just love the feedback I get from people whom I've never met. A lot of times it is on LinkedIn because, as you mentioned, I'm pretty active on there. And it's just really neat talking to people that have different viewpoints or like, hey, I really like the podcast. And sometimes there's a but after it, but I'm not sure I agree <laughs> with this. Or And that's great. It's good just for the industry to have those conversations. And certainly, I think that it's been a really good opportunity, and I really appreciate you having me on. Oh, and anytime you're a thought leader in the industry, you bring a lot of great perspective. And are you still active on Twitter as much as? Yeah, I try and do that. I was doing it with whenever I posted on LinkedIn, you know, like a lot of other people. But I'm definitely not as active on Twitter. You can still find me at Nate Jove. Otherwise, like I said, LinkedIn's generally the best way to get a hold of me because I, I check it probably, you know, at least once a day. So I would encourage anyone who wants to have a conversation to reach out. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you again. We'll have your contact information on the notes. And thank you again, Nate, for being on the podcast. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, Benoit. Hopefully next time we'll get to do it in person. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.